Welcome to Talking Business Now. I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us today. This is a very special week because October the 25th marks the 30th anniversary of some monumental legislation. H.R. 5050. It's also known as the Women's Business Owners Act of 1988. It was signed into law on October the 25th, 1988 by President Ronald Reagan. And the legislation is still considered the big bang of women's business ownership. Some of the things that it established. One, it made it illegal to require a male signature on loans that women business owners applied for. In many states prior to this legislation, it was mandatory that women have a male signature on those loans. It also established what became the Women's Business Center. It also required women-owned C-corporations to be counted by the census, and it created the National Women's Business Council, which reports to the president and to Congress on issues that impact women's business ownership. In this episode of Talking Business Now, we caught up with Virginia Littlejohn at the Hotel Savoy 21C in Kansas City, Missouri, where she's been celebrating the 30th anniversary of the legislation with the Kansas City chapter of NABO, the National Association of Women Business Owners. And that's a group that was instrumental in passing the legislation back in 88. Virginia was one of the three primary architects of the legislation, and she's with us today to give a behind-the-scenes look at the effort that resulted in this game-changing legislation, the impact it's had on women's entrepreneurship, and the issues and opportunities for current women business owners. Virginia spent her career advocating on behalf of women business owners. She's the president and co-founder of a nonprofit global accelerator for women's entrepreneurship called Quantum Leaps. She served as an advisor to major international institutions for several decades, and she's worked with women entrepreneurial leaders in more than 100 countries. She created the Global Banking Alliance for Women, which is active in 140 countries, and We Connect International, which links WBOs to corporate procurement opportunities in 25 countries. Currently, she is global strategist for the Women and Trade Program for the UN's International Trade Center in Geneva, and she's the chief chair of the U.S. delegation for the Women's 20 of the G20 countries. She's also a U.S. delegate to the Business 20. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with you and Virginia right after this message from our sponsor, Interobang Solutions. Would you like to position your company as an industry thought leader, increase engagement, and build credibility with prospects and clients, establish your influence as a trusted resource? Interobang Solutions offers full-service writing and publishing solutions that deliver your company's messages with a bang. You can count on us to provide turnkey solutions that support your existing marketing and communication staff or act as your full-service outsource partner. Interobang Solutions – providing custom writing, editing, and publishing solutions. Call 913-676-7272 or visit www.interobanksolutions.com. That's 913-676-7272. 
7272 or com. Tell us about the landscape of women's entrepreneurship prior to H.R. 5050's passage in 1988. Lay that out for us. Well, first of all, we were completely invisible. When we were covered in the newspapers, it was always on Mother's Day in the women's section of the newspaper. And we really had no presence. We were maybe 5% of the small business community, but we had terrible difficulties getting access to finance at that point. Access to government contracts were almost impossible, though there was an effort during the Carter administration in the late 70s to get women registered for a public procurement system, but that was really focused on tiny, tiny loans and tiny public procurement, and pretty much everything else was non-existent. The training for capacity building for women-owned businesses was all done by service corps of retired executives, gentlemen in their 60s and 70s or 80s, and they thought we should all be at home cooking and taking care of babies. One other thing I should say was there was a major publication called The State of Small Business, and that said that women-owned businesses generated not more than $10,000 a year in revenues and that we worked from our kitchen tables and basements and that we concentrated on macrame making and candle making. So everybody really thought that. That was an unofficial Small Business Administration publication. This is what the climate was. This is what uh, the image of women and women business owners was as you started planning really the precursor to HR 5050, which was the White House Conference on Small Business. We decided with the 1986 White House Conference that we would focus on presenting ourselves in a really uh, serious and substantive and thought leadership kind of way. So we figured out how to get our members elected um, through the state conferences. We had 12% of the delegates as a result of that. We developed a publication called Framework for the Future, which had 27 policy positions in it. And we ultimately were able to, with 12% of the delegates and with some sophisticated utilization of such technology as walkie-talkies, we were able to get 26 of our 27 policy positions adopted at the conference. And when you say we, you're talking about NABO, The National Association of Women Business Owners. Yes, and you were uh, president of NABO at that time. I was president of NABO in 84, national president in 84, 85, uh, but we did a lot of the early planning for the White House conference, Mm -hmm. and I was officially in charge of the 1986 strategy and implementation. It was a lot of fun. Oh, well, a lot of work, too, to get 26 of 27. I'm sure that they didn't know what hit them. Well, we worked on really terrific policy recommendations. We really tried to conceptualize working with our strongest, best members in whatever topic, whether it was tax policy, insurance, government, regulatory reform, 
uh, patents, international trade issues, many of them that most of the rest of the small business community had not focused on mm -hmm. heavily. But we would find our absolutely finest member on that topic, and that person helped us develop the policy recommendation. So we ended up getting 26 of the 27, but the impact was much, much bigger than that. Definitely. First of all, we had 15 of the state chairs, so we were viewed in a leadership position by the male business groups. They were very interested in partnering with us because we were able to do effective block voting on things and they wanted to get their issues tacked on to ours. And perhaps even more importantly, uh, they really started taking us seriously. Immediately after the White House conference, uh, they started inviting our members to go on to their boards of directors, which had never happened right. before. This is a huge step. You got lots of media coverage. Massive, just yeah. massive. Yeah, and so one of the other strategies that you employ, because you all, uh, none of you necessarily had a lot of policy experience at this level. Some did, but not, you know, a lot of this took a lot of training, uh, but you had very focused strategies. One of those was you noticed what color of suits the men were wearing, and, and there was a number issue as well. Yes, that's true. In uh, the early states, we went to all of the early states which were near Washington, D.C., so we had a group of about five people out of the Washington, D.C. chapter, and we studied how the votes were done, and we noticed that all of the gentlemen who were trying to become delegates were wearing charcoal or pinstripe suits or navy blue blazers, so we decided we would all wear red, yellow, purple, shocking pink, etc. We also noticed that there was a number system where the person was supposed to give his or her name and number. And we realized that was critically important. So we had um, all of our people in their bright colors. We had them all stand up at the front so they could turn around and face the entire room, give their name and number. And another method was we recruited other women who were delegates to become members of NABO. And we also did uh, advertising and promotion, not quite with billboards, but things in the ladies' restrooms as we had to queue. Uh, so we had our numbers up on uh, the wall and encouraging people to vote and, and including the main issue that the different delegates candidates mm -hmm. were interested in. Yeah. So you had a lot of fun, but there was a lot of strategy involved in this. You get 26 of the issues passed, uh, or the policy recommendations passed, and then, as you said, you're on boards of directors, and people are paying attention to NABO. So let's including including Inc. Magazine, which called us the best little advocacy group in America. That was a breakthrough. Right, right. And so all this attention is on you, which really set things up for H.R. 5050. So tell us about, let's fast forward a little bit and tell us about that. Well, this was two years later, 1988, mm -hmm. and we had already noticed, going back to 1976, that presidential election years were an opportunity to really move the needle. Extremely importantly, we had always worked across the aisle. We were always a bipartisan organization. And so what we did at this point, we decided we would 
move forward with an initiative to move women entrepreneurial issues, which we had not really focused on very much with the White House Conference on Small Business, because we were trying to put ourselves on the map more strategically. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we did this time was looking looking at the entire ecosystem, figuring out where the gaps were that we really wanted to move forward. And what we did to plot out the particular issues was five of us had a strategic slumber party in the hills of Virginia, and we came up with five issues that were absolutely critical. Research data and statistics, because everybody thought we were invisible, other than working on our macrame exactly. and candle making, uh, finance, which was you know a critically important issue, education and training to build capacity for women-owned businesses, of course, public procurement, and the final issue was we wanted a seat at the public policy table. So from that strategy, we had, and this happened, I should mention, right after a wonderful episode that happened at the Shrimp Bowl at a House Small Business Committee hearing where Jillian Rudd, our national president in 88, um, was talking with the chairman of the House Small Business Committee, John LaFalce of, of New York State, Albany. And Jillian asked Chairman LaFalce if he would be willing to hold hearings on women's entrepreneurship over several days before we'd had a few small hearings from the 70s to early 80s. But this was really viewed as a mainstream opportunity to basically deal with all the issues that were really important. Uh, Chairman LaFalce said he would be happy to do that, but they did not have very much staff expertise on that topic. And would it be okay if we did you know, a chunk of the work. And Jillian said, why, she certainly thought we would be able to do that. And so that was when we immediately went into our strategic slumber party planning, and we met immediately after the slumber party with both Chairman LaFalce and with Don Terry, who was the staff director of the House Small Business Committee. Don had four daughters, no sons, and so he knew lots about women and what they were interested in. He was very helpful to us, as was Chairman LaFalce. So we then worked on identifying the witnesses who could deal with the five different topics that we knew we wanted to cover. and we had about 10 people from Capital Area Nabo who just worked flat out on organizing. Our founding national president had a public relations firm, as did Jillian Rudd. They knew that it was going to be very important to have a movie star there if we were going to have any hope of getting significant representation from the members of Congress. We picked a movie star who now had her own business, a skincare business, which was very important because she was getting to be a bit older. And as you know, it's hard for women to continue as they get over, you know, the ingenue 
um, age range. So we got Polly Bergen, who was exactly the right age range for the men mm -hmm. who were members of the House Small Business Committee. So everybody came so they could get their photograph with Polly Bergen. So we had excellent attendance. We had great support from particular women in the House and the Senate, who were witnesses also. And we had a fabulous bench of experts in each of those five different areas. We uh, had another one of our attorneys out of Capital Area, Nabo Susan Chairs, who wrote much of the testimony and uh, trained them on how to deliver testimony. And we had two days of absolutely magnificent hearings that got all of the key issues on the table. So you ended up dropping the one on procurement. Tell that us about is correct. the reasons for uh, that. We realized that we were not going to be able to get the legislation if we moved ahead with procurement. It was a little too threatening to certain people, and it was the issue that perhaps could have had the biggest impact on the growth of women's entrepreneurship. But we thought that through creation of what became the National Women's Business Council, uh, that was the, the seat at the policy mm -hmm. table that I mentioned, that that would enable us to address that issue. But we made the right choice. We would have lost the legislation. Instead, we got four pieces that were adopted almost unanimously mm -hmm. by both the House and the Senate. Mm -hmm. So those pieces were to train women-owned businesses. Uh, we created what were called demonstration projects, five training programs, which later became the Women's Business yes. Centers. Now we have more than 100 of them around the country. A critically important one was getting the Census Bureau to count C corporations because before they just were focused on sole proprietors, right. and that was why they thought we had such a tiny uh, amount in revenue. And so that was really transformational. All of a sudden, once that was implemented, you could really see the economic impact. Then uh, one of the most outrageous, the most outrageous, was one of the witnesses, Lillian Lincoln, a wonderful African-American woman business owner who did not have a living father, I believe she was divorced, she didn't have a brother, but she did have a 17-year-old son whom she completely supported through her very successful business. And at that point, there were laws in many states requiring that uh, there be a, a male co-signatory. Right. So her 17-year-old son had to sign for her, co-sign for. And now when you tell that story to women business owners, I mean, they cannot believe it. It's just, just 30 years ago, though. I know, just 30 exactly. Years ago. Yeah. And then the one other thing that was really critical was getting the National Women's Business Council created. And I served on the council for its first four years. We worked on implementing many of these recommendations. We did a lot of work on organizing women entrepreneurial summits to get input from women around the country and making ongoing policy recommendations to the Congress 
to the head of the Small Business Administration and to the President of the United States. Right. And that council still exists, and NAVO has a permanent seat in exactly. that council because mm-hmm. of the role that NAVO played in, in its development. Um, I want to point out the significance of um, the legislation when you said you had the expert testimony of the woman whose 17-year-old son signed. At that time, in many, many states, it was legal for them to require a male signature for a business. Not only legal, but mandatory. Right. And so the legislation changed that. And uh, hallelujah. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So so this was the big bang of women's entrepreneurship. It was game changing for women. As you said, uh, you had a role in it. Many women did. And, And one of the things that I think goes unnoticed was that, number one, you were on the fast track for getting, it was unheard of, what, 103 days was was what it took from start to finish? President Reagan signed the legislation. I, I should say, while we were working on it, the, the name of it was uh, H.R. 5050, House Resolution 5050, when it became law on October 25th, 1988, when President Reagan signed it, it was known as the Women's Business Ownership Act of 88. And it is astonishing to get legislation through the House and the Senate in such a short period of time. Many pieces of legislation can take seven years or more or they don't get through at all but because we did it in a a presidential election year because we worked really closely with the house and the senate uh, and because we always focused on it as an economic issue and a job creation issue it was Mm -hmm. very popular with with everyone yeah absolutely the other thing that people don't know is that there was much work that went into it prior to that but all of you who were involved gave up your businesses for that time for the most part and worked pretty exclusively on this we didn't shutter our businesses no, but you but our employees yeah. all wondered where we were right right but we really had to do it because mm-hmm. we knew we really thought we were going to be able to pull this off because it was one other point I should make is that we actually wrote the legislation. Right. And, you know, obviously we coordinated closely with the chairman and the ranking minority member, Andy Ireland, but we wrote the legislation. We wrote the, the questions for the members of Congress to ask us, but we really thought this was our shot and we had to go for it. So we all did, and I think all of us think it's one of the highlights of our life and of our business careers. Oh, and, and those of us who, who came later as women business owners are forever indebted to that work, no question. Let's fast forward now to present day, and what do you think still remains to be accomplished in order to propel women business owners to even greater levels of success? Uh, Access to capital is still an issue. Bank loans, women are doing much better with that, much, much better with that than they were originally. Uh, And the area that has been the biggest challenge has been in the area of equity. So angel investments and venture capital, it is a serious lag. But just in the last say year and a half or two years, there's been a lot of focus on that. 
and uh, some of the biggest uh, venture capital firms are now bringing in women partners. They've actually, much to their surprise, learned that when they have one or more women partners, they often have better returns and better success with IPOs and so forth. And there are a number of people who have worked in angel investment who are now women who are really scaling up their area of impact and working on training many more women angels who can fund women founders. Another area that I know that you're very interested in is innovation. I mean, we're talking about women in STEM, uh, the digitization of the economy, the future of work. Talk to us about why you're interested in those and think they're so important. Well, for a series of reasons. First of all, we originally had the industrial revolution, then we had, you know, the information revolution. We're moving to a whole nother level right now with machine learning, with artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence has been a concept for probably about 60 years, but the power of the chips, the power of computing, has become so much more advanced in the last few years that almost every area, every industry sector is open to the impact of artificial intelligence, the impact of what sensors and the Internet of Things are going to be doing. So much of the economy has been digitized, and it's really important for women business owners to be deeply involved with that so that they're future-proofing their businesses and not falling by the wayside in an analogous situation to the horse and buggy era. Right, because as you say, this is going to be as massive a change as the Industrial Revolution was. You know, let's talk about something else that's very important you're deeply involved with, and that is the Women's 20. Tell us about that and how that is impacting and, and setting the stage for success for women business owners. After the economic crisis 10 years ago, something was created. Originally, there was something called the Group of Seven, which also briefly was the Group of Eight when Russia was part of it. But these were major countries, industrialized democracies primarily, And then it was decided after the economic crisis they needed to create a G20 to broaden the input from countries. So the G20 consists of 19 countries and the European Union. It comprises three-quarters of the world economy. And they started off dealing only with financial and economic issues. They added labor issues. And then they added other issues from what they call engagement groups. So they added think tanks. They have 140 think tanks in those countries and the EU. They added youth because youth unemployment is an unbelievably important issue in many, many countries. And they think entrepreneurship is one way to address youth unemployment. Four years ago, they added women and they created an engagement group called the Women's 20. The first one was held in Turkey. 
I was the expert on women's entrepreneurship for the one in Turkey. Then I became an, a U.S. delegate the next year when I moved back to the United States. That was in China. Then last year, Germany, and this year, Argentina. Every year, one of the countries has the chairmanship or the presidency of the G20, and that means that all of the engagement groups make policy recommendations to the presidents and prime ministers of those countries who meet at the end of the year and then come up with an overall G20 communique. So this year, last year uh, for Germany, I chaired digital inclusion and coordinated women's entrepreneurship. This year, I coordinated women's entrepreneurship and worked with all four of the inclusion groups, digital, uh, financial, labor, and rural um, entrepreneurship or rural economic issues. Right, because they're all going to impact women. It, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I'm very hopeful that we can get women's entrepreneurship as an inclusion group next year. This year I had to participate in all of the yes. inclusion groups. So I know a lot about quite a few issues right. that I wasn't world class on before. But it, it's a very important vehicle to get multiple large companies, countries, plus the European Union to really drive change on important issues. And I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to do significant things with women's entrepreneurship through the, the W20. Well, with you involved, we know that that's going to happen. <laughs> you know, you've devoted such a significant portion of your life to these issues. And we really didn't get a chance to talk about your company, Quantum uh, Leaps which is a nonprofit, uh, but if people would like to find out more about Quantum Leaps and the projects that you're working on, where's the best place to go and maybe kind of keep up with the progress that you're making? Uh, Quantum Leaps is a global accelerator for women's entrepreneurship, and uh, our website is quantumleapsinc.org. I'm realigning the organization around implementation of W20 recommendations, and we're in discussions with the World Bank um, about creating a women entrepreneurial clearinghouse. We're also discussing creating women's entrepreneurship action alliances to drive group collaboration on making things happen that can create the, the right ecosystem and environment for women's entrepreneurship moving forward as we move into what lies ahead. <laughs> yes, and so quantumleapsinc.org, and we can, as you're realigning the website, we can follow the progress Great. on the implementation. So make sure that you put that uh, on your regular reading list. Virginia, <laughs> it has been a pleasure having you here to talk about these very important issues today. Thank you so much for the work that you do for all of us. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for tuning in today. Please be sure to join us for the next episode of Talking Business Now. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.